Hello. Welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to discuss the push we're seeing right now for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour and consider the extent to which the, the benefits that are being touted and the risks being warmed of, warned of are legit or are they overstated? And later on, we're going to weigh in on some recent research on male aggression being tied to challenges just to masculinity for some, as opposed to actual real physical threats. Joining me today is a man who is given food for thought, dog. So get a plate. Tunde Ogunlana. Tunde. You ready to get it down today? I'm ready to get it down. I'm ready to get my plate and I'm ready to eat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're recording this on March 1st, 2021. And we wanted to take a look at the debate over raising the minimum wage that we're seeing going right now. Now, many trace the drive to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour back to protests by fast food workers in New York City back in 2012. And we've seen several states and cities since then pass laws which operate to increase the minimum wages, some going all the way to $15 an hour. But in the last few months, we've seen this push to go to $15 an hour really bloom federally. And we now know that this won't happen in this upcoming stimulus bill. And we don't have to go into the political maneuvering of all that. But I do want to just talk to you about whether raising the minimum wage from where it is now is a good idea or if the people talking doom and gloom are onto something that we should really be paying attention to. So Tunde, from where we stand today with a federal minimum wage at $7.25, do you think that raising the minimum wage is a good idea from an economic perspective and from a social perspective? In preparing for today, it, it made me realize how like we have other important topics that's become now kind of cultural wars, whether it be yeah. climate, whether it be, um, you know, healthcare in this country uh, and other things, um, you know, tax policy, all that. Uh, I've realized that this minimum wage debate has become also a political culture fault line. And, and what so, you mean by that, you're kind of saying like it's not people aren't arguing this purely on the basis of merit. It's kind of like how they view themselves or how they view what America should be from more of a, a feeling standpoint, Correct. right? Um, yeah. I'd rather have a thoughtful conversation with you and get down to the real deal of what does this all mean? Okay. And and the thing is, is that I guess to, to get into it now is I look at this debate as two-pronged. Um, one is kind of the math part, the arithmetic, the facts of wages, um, you know, what it does, raising wages to maybe, let's say, employers, what it does having lower wages and what that means for workers. And as you know, it's one plus one equals two. So somebody's got income and they've got expenses. And, um, and, or in and, economic terms, you got supply and you got demand. Correct. Yeah. And, and I know we'll get into conversations that, um, you know, you like as well down the road here about things like the tension between labor and capital during these disputes. So to me, that's one part of, I would call that kind of the more granular and factual and more of the mathematic part of the discussion, which is math one plus one equals two. So we can't, I mean, someone could debate me about that, but in the end, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like we understand what that that's kind of set in stone. Those, that side of the argument, the other side being the social and cultural part, I think is a part that's more esoteric, philosophical, and where you do get all this kind of, like you said about the gut feel, some people feel like, it's the right thing to do. Some people feel like it's not and they have their reasons. And I think from that vein, I look at it as 
also I realized in doing some reading as we were preparing was what is the, this comes down to the social compact and what is the agreement between the government and its citizens as to why this is even discussed at the federal level. And we're going to get into that later. And it got me thinking about things like the Hippocratic Oath and some things from the medical community. Like we've made a decision in this country that if someone shows up to an ER room, they're going to get seen, whether they have insurance or not, whether they like, let's say, universal health care or they don't like it. When you show up to an emergency room and you got a real issue, like you've got a bone sticking out of your leg or you know, you're, you're, you can't breathe because you're choking on something. They're not asking you what your insurance coverage is at that second. Well, they're not asking you what, what, what political stance you took. There's a, there's a certain culture that we've developed in our country that if someone shows up to the hospital, they're going to get taken care of. And, and, and some, some would say that that's like true American exceptionalism. Like the way we do things here is that we go the extra mile in certain something like that. Like that's not required for a functioning society to do that. That's, that's a level yeah, of, that's and, going above and beyond, but go and, ahead. And I'll say this, you know, not to make this about healthcare, but there are societies that have chosen not to do that. Correct. That's foreign to us. We, we have never, we, we don't know what it's like to have somebody literally go to the hospital with their life on the line and be turned away just because they don't believe that in that culture or that society. So, um, and I think, you know, I, I, have had already a couple of events where had I not gone to the hospital, I would have died. And um, I, I, you know, until you're in that state, the feeling of vulnerability is is uncomparable. So what, what I'm what I'm getting at here is where are we as Americans in terms of our social compact with with workers versus, you know, the capital side? And it got me thinking about the why. So when I think about the why, I thought, why do we have a minimum wage in the first place? This wasn't in the Constitution. This wasn't in part of the founding documents of our country. This had nothing. And to, and to, ha- and to have a free enterprise uh, economic system you, you, based on a market, you don't have to have a minimum wage. Correct. That's a very good observation. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not a prerequisite. Yeah, this isn't. There's nothing in the let's say the definition of capitalism that says you have to have a floor on wages. And you know, we didn't fight a civil war about this. So I, I started thinking, like, okay, so where in our history did this kind of start coming in? And I and I and I and I learned that uh, the the uh, minimum wage was first implemented in 1938 at 25 cents an hour, and then of course my brain took me to okay so what was going on in 1938 and we all know that we have we're in the midst of the Great Depression, so at they told me okay at that point which was similar around the time when we created as a country Social Security, there was a social agreement and a compact between labor and the government and capital that said. There's going to be a floor for someone. And I think, you know, we want to be very clear here. Sometimes this gets mixed up with welfare, like somehow that people that are asking for minimum wage are asking for handouts or something like that. We're not talking about any of that. We're here talking about someone that works 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, a full-time wage worker. What is the fair or, wage? Or, I mean, more precisely, we're talking about somebody who works an hour. How much should they get for that hour? Now, presumably, yeah. they're working more than an hour. Um, and then we like to quantify it from the standpoint of, okay, if someone works 2,000 hours, which you know usually you, you, that's your calculation because you do two weeks uh, of vacation, which doesn't really exist as much <laughs> as far as a given anymore anyway. But that's usually 50 weeks, 40 hours a week is 2,000. So if someone does that, are we okay if they're still in poverty? If, are we okay if they still can't afford to live? Like find to, to, to afford a place to live or they can't afford to eat. And yeah, so getting to the social conscious construct or the con- compact, I would say, yeah, look, this came about 
when our society saw the downside of not putting some type of of baseline in as far as the two things they took care of. Hey, if you're working, we want you to make at least a certain amount of money. And then if you, once you're, you're old, we want you to have at least a certain amount of dignity to be able to, to live and not be on the street because you can't work anymore. So those are the two things following the great depression that Americans decided or the Americans leadership decided, okay, here's the things we, the, the baseline we have to establish so that we can build this type of a society that we want. Yep, and I and I think um, and you've alluded to some of these these ideas that, um, you know, because because there's all type of people that are out there, right? And let's say employers, uh, some employers would 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 want to take care of their employees and and feel magnanimous about about all that, and some don't, and some would do it, but in a certain situations like a recession or something, might cut wages down to a dollar. So, well, let me but, jump in there real quick because yeah. I, I had wanted to. I want to get to an answer to this also, but right. the th- that part about it is you you can't forget the fact that this is a capitalist system, and capitalist systems put downward pressure on wages. Like going all the way back to Adam Smith, like this is the the way capitalist systems work is it puts downward pressure on wages. So even if you have business owners who want to do right by their employees. The pressure, there are pressures that are going to be placed on them and put on them to where they're going to want to put, push wages down. The, the, the rule of thumb basically is that in, in, that, in the capitalist system, wages, if left alone, unchecked by government or any type of regulatory industry, wages will drop below sustenance. And so if that's what we know from 400 years of practice, so to speak, then we do a minimum wage in order to stop that, to put a to put guardrails. You use the term guardrails. I like the term guardrails on what we know the nature of things that we engage in are. So we we want to run a democracy. We need to put certain guardrails up to make sure that our democracy, the 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 common pitfalls for a democracy, we don't fall, we don't get subjected to them. And then the same thing here. We want to have a capitalist um, free enterprise system. There's certain guardrails that we've learned as societies and studying economics and so forth need to be put up. So I think from an economic standpoint, I would say that this definitely is justified from the standpoint of it is that the question isn't, the question's already been answered. Should we have a minimum wage? Now, should we, should, should the minimum, what the scale of the minimum wage is, is really the debate. We've already pretty much decided. Nobody, there's, there's not two sides of an argument being, okay, we should have $15 and the other side being, we should have nothing. It's just, we should have 15 or we should have 10 or we should have, we should keep it the same. And so it's a matter of scale. How big should it be? How much money should 40 hours a week make for you? And the, you know, we'll, we can talk about you know, the numbers and I know you, you, you want to do that, yeah. but what you'll see basically, and, and why from an economic standpoint, I think this always makes sense within reason, again, not saying you're going to pay somebody $80 an hour to you know do something, do menial tasks, but within reason, as long as it's something within reason, because the people at the lower end of the wage spectrum spend all their money. And so it be, that money just goes right back into the economy. It creates more demand for goods and services, which will create a positive uh, uh, cycle that feeds itself. You, you more demand, more demand needs more demand. You have more workers. You have one of the common misconceptions. I'll kick it back to you after this. But one of the common misconceptions in our society we have, which I think is intentional, by the way, is we look at business owners as job creators, as if they do it from a magnanimous magnanimous standpoint. Like, oh yeah, I'm feeling good today. Let me create a job, and that's not how it works. They create jobs where there's demand for the things they sell. You know, and so if you create demand, then business owners seeing that they need to get that, they get that money 
They hire people to help them get that money. And so ultimately, we want demand as far as to see our, our economy work well. That's why when the government wants to stimulate the economy, what do they do? They put money in everybody's pocket. Put money in everybody's pocket. What do they do? They go spend it, stimulates the economy. So minimum wage can offer something like that. And, and to point out what you said, or to, to kind of piggyback on what you said earlier, do, does so not in a handout way, but just in saying we're going to regulate the system a little bit to make sure that if somebody's playing by the rules and working hard, you're going to have enough money in your pocket to live. And then that's going to further help the economy. Yeah, no, those are all great points. And um, a couple of them to, to unpack a bit. I mean, one is um, I want you to allude real quick to Adam Smith because you can't bring a name up like that and, and not give us a little bit of background on who he was. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, Adam Smith is kind of, he's looked at from an econ in the economics field. He's looked at as kind of a, like a forebear, like somebody who, you know, came up with a lot of these theories and he wrote Wealth of Nations, which is, you know, like treaties level as far as in, he, you know, like he was an observant guy. He, he saw a lot of things in terms of when you had more of a mercantile system, how things were working and then how things can work in other ways. And so when we say, you know, it goes back to like he lived in the 1700s and he's writing all these things. And but one of the things he observed is in terms of wages is that, yeah, when when you have those pressures, those competing pressures between capital and labor, the the pressure is always being pressed downward on wages. And so you need to either need to correct for that or you need to know that's there and just say, oh, oh well, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of the that's the battle you have when you have like labor unions and so forth. Yeah. They're fighting for for more of a piece of the pie and capital's like, eh, we ain't got it, you know, or whatever it is, whether they have it or not. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I want to point out, too, that I was looking it up. The book was published March 9th of 1776. So we're about a week away from the 245th anniversary of that book. Wow. And and yeah, no, it is wow. And it's actually amazing. Um, and I find it fascinating because that goes back to what I said about the kind of the numbers part, that there's two parts of this debate. Yeah. A lot of this stuff has been settled for a long time. I mean, think yeah. about it. That book is 245 years old and is applicable in today because it basically was a foundation of our economy. And everything, like you said, that he pointed out in that book is still accurate today because what people don't understand is economics, there's a reason why it's not part of a science curriculum. But in the end, what makes e e economics tick is the the uh, the the movement of humans and yeah. what we decide to do in our collective behavior, both at a micro level, which is what you decide in your family and your household to go buy and eat and, and, and go spend money on. And then at a macro level, what we all choose to do collectively and then what the nation choose to spend its, its treasury on and all that. So I think with a few things you said, I want to back it up because they're, they're very important. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was the lower income spends money. So let's sit on that for a minute because that's so true. I looked at this as we were reading it as now I'm going to go 30,000 feet here for the listeners. They're not, I know they're not the same, but raising the minimum wage is somewhat akin to the stimulus that was just passed over, you know, the various stimuluses that were passed over the last 12 months due to the COVID pandemic. What had happened? People lost their jobs. And they got a $600 check here or a $1,000, $1,200 check there. And to James's point, there's that, that money went right out of their hands in the economy. And a lot of people were asking those questions about, well, why is the stock market going up when all these jobs are? Because the stock market knew that money was coming. It, <laughs> it, it was literally like a recycling of, of money. And, and yeah, Well, you call it the velocity of money. Yeah. And, and I'll explain that. that in a sec. But it's kind well, of let like, me Let me say something just for clarity. Uh, it's not everybody spends money. It's that on the lower end of the income spectrum, they generally spend all of their money. 
And so whereas somebody who makes $250,000 a year, if you give them $600, they may spend it or they may just put it in the bank somewhere, put it in a CD somewhere. Like they don't need to spend that. They're not, they make, they make more money than they need to spend on a monthly basis anyway. And so, but when you take people who, who the dollars that they get, they spend back out, that directly goes back into the economy and that supports economic activity in a way that's almost one-to-one. And so that's really what we're talking about there is if you give people who make seven twenty-five dollars more money, that money's going right back into the economy, like directly. Yeah, no, and, and that's the thing. And that's why I even talk about the performance of the market last year, not, not to try and get in the weeds with that, but this idea that, again, what is the macroeconomy reflection of is, is the behavior of a group of humans. So a lot of people saw that and said, hold on, they're going to give out $4 trillion. There's, there's, a, there's a high margin of that that's going to go recycled right back into purchasing products from businesses that a lot of them are publicly traded on the exchange. So, so this idea, so, so the stimulus worked because it gave people confidence that the economy would not go into a depression. And, and it got me thinking that the minimum wage con- argument is exactly that. And you're right, James, you or I getting an extra, you know, $5 an hour for our labor, that's going in the bank most likely because we do okay. and we, we make more than we spend anyway. But somebody earning $11 an hour going to 12, 13, 15, that money is really going to get spent because they're going to buy things that they haven't been able to buy. And it's not just about just consumer goods, of course, consumer goods, are, are there as well, but it's going to give people better opportunity for, to, you know, housing opportunities. They're going to, they're going to be able to rent apartments in different places, eventually, you know, hopefully buy homes. They're going to be buying nicer cars. They're going to be doing certain things. So all that is, goes back to what you just coined um, the term velocity of money, which is if you give that person a dollar versus giving me or you the dollar, if you and I are given that dollar, it sits in the bank. And the velocity is not as rapid as someone who gets the $600, goes to the grocery store, goes to, you know, buy a new shirt. That money is now recycled in the economy at a much higher velocity because then that business takes in revenue. They're paying their rent. They're paying employees. They're paying, you know, the owner is taking money for their family. So, and, and, then, and, then, and then those employees of that business and that owner are going to buy goods from someone else. So the idea- yeah. And, and well, I wanted to say one other thing because I want to keep us moving. Um, like, I do think that some of the concerns people raise from an economic standpoint shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. Like, raising the minimum wage would create dislocation. Like, they, they, they I think the the con- Congressional Budget Office came out with a report saying, "Hey, we're gonna if we raise the minimum wage fifteen dollars, you would lose X number of jobs." It was over a million. And on the first cycle, basically, as far as from a one-to-one basis, that's probably true. I wouldn't doubt them. That's not a partisan entity. The The problem with that analysis, though, is that what happens is, is when you increase the wages, yes, every single job that everybody has right now may not be there. Some businesses may need to hire less people or ha- retain less people. But what would happen is, is if there's that much more money being spent, then other businesses will pop up to, again, to capture that money, to go get that money. And so yep. what you're counting on basically is not necessarily the every job that's there being maintained. You're, t- you're counting on more entrepreneurship, more jobs being created than what's going to be lost. So there's going to be dislocation. Not 100% everybody stays where they are. But some people stay where they are and make more. And then other people, there'll be other opportunities because – People are buying twice as many cheeseburgers. People are buying twice as many books. People are buying twice as many as everything. Because, well, the people who at, at that end of the income spectrum. So 
I think it's important when you're looking at it from a number standpoint is to not stop your analysis right at the point of, okay, we've done this. What happens to all the existing jobs? Because the whole point of it is to grow the pie by growing demand. And then, so from that standpoint, I think you're, you're looking at, there's, there's still things to be concerned about. Again, it's not to dismiss these concerns. I've seen people raise childcare as an issue. Like, hey, well, what about that? Because that's often paid not by big businesses, but by individuals who are just working themselves. And so all of those things are, are considerations. And that's where you need, actually, that's the point of our system where we debate issues, come up with compromises and so forth. Because if those are real issues, which I'm not saying they're not, then someone should propose some type of a compromise where we can figure out a way to account for that. And whether we adopt the compromise or not, it's something to put on our radar so that we can think about it. Because one thing about it is nobody has all the answers. Like that's that's one of the things that for whatever reason we don't embrace. Like every side yeah. wants to think that they have all the answers to everything. And so g- give us something well, else on me, economic, me, but I want to move to social as well. Um, um, that actually just made me realize as you were talking that and you make a good point. I mean, look, some people have a zero sum, right? And that's why I said that's where you go from the kind of numbers and this stuff that we're talking now back to the social of I just don't agree with it. I don't believe in it. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but the idea is because I started thinking the people that don't agree with raising the minimum wage are usually the same ones who don't believe in a basic universal income. And personally, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I get the idea that everybody probably needs a little bit of help here and there. Or not everybody, but, but some people do. But, you know, that to me is a slippery slope to a whole different system from capitalism. So I'm not sure how I feel about it. But what I would say is if you do fight raising minimum wage, especially like not even once a decade, you know, to keep pace with inflation, then you are actually in the long run probably doing help to the universal income cause because your point about child care is very valid. Let's let's go back real quick and look at the numbers. Current minimum wage at the federal level is $7.25. Again, to your point about the 2,000-hour annual um, full-time kind of thing, you're looking at just around 15000 a year for one person who is, who is making minimum wage. And so at some point, like you said, if someone's got to pay $500 a week for childcare and they're a single mom making seven twenty-five an hour, I mean, it's probably not happening. But at, yeah. and like you said, at some point, the society is going to advocate something. Either she got to make more money in that example, or I could see where the argument for basic universal income might not be, okay, let's just give her $1,000 a month, or it might be, but it could be saying if she makes under a certain amount, her child care, certain things are just subsidized, kind of like food stamps. Yeah. Now we got stamps for everything, child care stamps. You got you know certain goods and services that that people might just need to survive today, right? So my I think point, you're really on to something and, with that. Well, let me just finish because, yeah. and that's what I'm saying is that the people that are against raising minimum wage are usually the ones that think of that type of behavior as straight socialism. And the other thing too, I would say is, actually hearing myself say this, I prefer to see the minimum wage over that because that's going to come out of all of our pocket in the US Treasury, these subsidies and things like that. Versus a business that might be making a good profit that just has been asked to steadily raise wages over a certain period of time to a very low percentage of the workforce, because not yeah. that many people are making seven twenty-five an hour. So, so the thing, and we have those. Well, and let me and let me jump on that real quick because yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Like by and large, I want everyone to be treated with a level of dignity. But the universal basic income sounds better than there's a lot more to think about with that. Basically, like there's a lot more because then you have to worry about. 
whether that changes the calculation for things in terms of anytime you do anything from a policy standpoint, you got to consider uh, unintended consequences and so forth. So what does universal basic income do there? And they have the, the raising the minimum wage is, is much easier and it's much more tangible and it still does tie it ties everything to to work productivity and wage. Now the you know like that doesn't require us to change basically everything that we do and how our how we approach everything. So yeah, you're correct in that it's you kind of if you don't want to go the one direction, then saying hey, well let's let's raise the floor a little bit on our wage structure now seems like a good way to kind of do something without having to go that other direction. No, and, and that's what I was going to say. I think actually this conversation may, makes me realize that the raising the minimum wage is actually fair. The social part of it, though, is I think that why wouldn't we want to raise the floor in our nation? You know, isn't that American exceptionalism? Isn't that saying we want we, if someone works a full time job, they should be able to live a decent life? Regard, like, should we not want minimum wage to be like that? And so I, I actually... It strikes me always that a lot of people that that really push American exceptionalism so hard seems to have so low expectations for America and Americans. And I don't know if they use American exceptionalism like that construct kind of as you know, to, to make themselves feel better, but they don't really believe it because I look at it like, well, hey, if anybody can do it, why can't we? You know, like, why can't we? I want I think you incentivize more people to work. If that's your minimum wage, like we get more people to buy in, more people to contribute, more people to to invest more in society by making it so that investing in society, playing by the rules is more profitable. It brings more to you. It brings you a level of dignity, dignity right now. Minimum wage from a social standpoint is not doing the job that it was set up to do. So it's time to raise it. Now, again, you want to debate where you raise it to. Fine. But, yeah, you, you need to raise it and you get it up. And then, again, that creates more a, a better experience in society and that's what we should be wanting now you make a great point i mean i just did the math here out of curiosity as you were talking so do you know what the unemployment benefit is in the state of florida what i believe it's about 285 bucks a week and that's not including the stimulus you know that the, the extra okay. stimulus was on top of that mm-hmm. um, and i know in florida fortunately for our state we have a higher minimum wage than the federal level but I just did the math. Seven twenty-five times forty hours in a week is two hundred ninety bucks. Oh, so if you had a state hypothetically that you know, which I think more than fifty percent of the states don't have their own minimum wage, so they use a federal minimum wage. And if they're paying, and Florida's pretty low, from my understanding, in terms of in comparison to other states, about our weekly unemployment rate. I think a lot of states are like five six hundred bucks for unemployment. So my point, you you make a great point that by not raising the minimum wage. I could see somebody and, and somebody's, you know, people having that mindset of, well, why am I going to work for somebody yelling at me and some boss and getting all dirty and greasy when I can go pretend like I'm looking for work and make, you know, unemployment every Wait, week? Well, hold on, and, hold on. Let's put that in the economic context because the way you do it there, you put it in like, oh, there's something wrong with those people. But the same way I was telling you, like in capitalism, the pressures create downward pressure on wages. Well, in that sense, the economic analysis there is that working with your time is less valuable than getting fired. Yeah, that's well, the economic analysis. And, and so, and, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, that's the yeah. economic analysis. You don't have to put the person doing that analysis in any kind of crazy light. Like, it's just like, yes, you should not have a system set up where not doing things a certain way or doing, doing things the way you would like to incentivize is less desirable. You well, want to set it up so doing things in a way that benefits society is desirable. I feel like to to the point you made that this this idea of 
businesses are going to, I, I agree, there, there would be a disruption with raising the minimum wage, potentially. And I do think that the way it's being discussed when it's discussed thoughtfully is no one's saying go from 725 to 15 in six months, like this massive shock. Yeah. They're talking about doing it over a five, six year period, graded in gradually. And so, you know, will there be some job losses? I'm pretty sure. But will those jobs reappear a few years later somewhere else where, more, where there's more demand because you basically have another stimulus that this time isn't funded by the taxpayer, but is funded by apparently the corporate fat cats that everybody seems to hate, but no one ever wants to touch. So, and, it's, and it's ongoing. Yeah, it's not and, just a one-time thing. Is, it's every day. But this every is why I just agree with you just on the social and the cultural war part, because that's the part I feel is the cultural war part, because I talk to a lot of people and people that it would be in their interest, kind of like when the Affordable Care Act was yeah. being discussed. And people who were unhealthy, who couldn't afford their health insurance premiums and all that were the ones that were against it. And I've got people that, you know, I've talked to making nine bucks an hour, but because of their, the way that they feel either politically or culturally or socially, they're against this. And I'm thinking, I'd be no, you're right about that. And, you're right and then the that. other thing I just wanted to say real quick is also looking at the companies who are supporting this. So it's Amazon, Target, Walmart, Costco, Hobby Lobby, Wayfair, Best Buy. And I'm just reading the list. There's more than that. And then they're talking about Trinity Health Systems and some of these big, big health uh, you know, hospitals and all that. Wells Fargo, Franklin Savings Bank, Allstate, Amalgamated Bank. So what I'm saying is you're talking about some of the largest employers in this country that are saying, we're okay with this. We don't have a problem. And that's where yeah, I'll they you. all they all offer goods and services. Yeah. They know and they're going to get more money. If that's they my do point, it. James, is that it shows you that when corporate America, especially at this level, like you're saying that Wells Fargo, they know that more people with more money means they're going to borrow more money from them. <laughs> right. They're going to Amazon. You know, you Amazon, know yeah. that Amazon's in favor of this. Exactly. How many people are <laughs> be on their phones ordering more stuff with a higher yeah. wage? So, so that's what I'm saying is like the corporate industry sees it. And, and, and it goes back to, and we talked about this on a prior discussion months ago about the ESG investments, you know, the um, socially responsible stuff that, you know, when, when Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are coming out with studies saying companies that are socially sustainable perform better from a, from a growth perspective and their stock prices have higher returns, I don't think Morgan Stanley and, 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 and Goldman Sachs are made up of people who are like tree-hugging lefties that, that, you know, support Bernie Sanders. You know, this, what they're yeah. doing is they're using empirical data and saying, this is the fact. And then, so when you start looking and uncovering, that's why I said, like climate change, I, I never understood why that was such a huge argument for people. If you understand how a greenhouse works, if you lived up north, anywhere where it snowed. I remember being a kid, you're driving down the street and there's all these greenhouses in the winter when it's covered in snow and you can see through the window. And I remember my mom explaining, but yeah, you you trap the CO2 in that dome and it makes the, the, the area hotter and the plants survive. I was like, okay, yeah. I didn't, that's not too hard to, to contemplate. So, <laughs> so you have to make it then a cultural issue. You're right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. To get a, enough people to not want to buy into it because now they've staked their emotional and their ego into this position. So now they can't go back on it from a subconscious level. And that's why I said the math and the economics on a minimum wage, it, it, it doesn't lie. And you're right. We would have to be ready for maybe a couple of years of maybe some sort of dislocation, maybe some job losses. But in the end, that's OK, because you take a little bit of a half step back and take two step forward type of thing as a nation. Yeah. Well, and but the thing is, is that I, I, when I say the dislocation, I'm saying the growth would be happening at the same time. It's just like I said, you may be working at 
burger shop A and then the burger shop say like, all right, we got to cut in, cut employment. But then a new burger shop's going to open up because there's more people buying burgers. You know, it's so a new the demand you, know, you can't way. argue with. Until this conversation, I didn't realize how much that is going to fall back on us, the taxpayer, when people are hurting and, uh, you know, and they, and they need food and all this stuff. Because our country is not going to let people just mass on mass starve. Like you said, the 30s prove that, that at some point it gets bad enough where the country will step in because the population is going to demand it. And yeah. so instead of being proactive, we're being now the same that we've been the last, you know, let's well, say we're just 30 years to, of our politics. We're easy to distract. We're easy, just, like you yeah. said, that's your social argument or the, the, the culture war argument is that the people, it's easy to take some people's eye off the ball, basically, yeah. and make it about other things that it's not really about. So I, I did want to, I mean, we've been talking about how it generally, the, the minimum wage is something that, although there are challenges that need to be addressed when you do it, it's something that will that grows the pie, so to speak. It creates more demand. And there's just every single economic theory knows that you creating more demand is going to create more activity. Um, but the one question I wanted to ask it, for you is, does this make sense? And we, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this. But one, the one thing that people are raised is, does this make sense during the pandemic? Does that change the calculation at all? Or should we try to continue to just set up set up the world the way we want it and then work through the pandemic as we are? And then also, I mean, if you want to touch on it as well, one thing is, what does it make sense to do it federally? You yeah, know, like no, good, good questions. Um, so I'll ask the second one first. I think, I, think, I think the first question is more of just, you know, whatever you think is right. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the guy to answer, should you do this in a pandemic or not, or do it in normal times or not. I mean, from an economic standpoint, I think we already answered where, where we see it. And just real quick, for me on that, if you're going to do it, I say you just do it. Um, I mean, it's not like we aren't trying to out. We're not out here trying to create demand. Like the whole pandemic has been about, hey, let's create more demand. Let's create more demand. So I actually like this idea as a way to do it sustainably. Again, like government cutting checks is great, but that's not a sustainable solution to anything. Yeah, And no, so man. if anything, the pandemic gives us some runway to try to, to, to help people absorb the the changes so to speak and so we you know when you get to the runway after the pandemic people are more ready to let this thing take off but you know go ahead yeah i mean look i i that's a good point you made because i didn't think of it this way until you said that i'm still neutral on whether it should be down or done now or not because i think you know what i think is you know now i'll tell my answer i think the answer from an economic standpoint is yes it should be done because it appears it'll be healthy for any economy um yeah. to have to have the, the the bottom rise up as well um, over time so that their purchasing power grows and we all make more money. So that's one thing. But you make a good point. That is, if we're in this transition, because it got me thinking again, um, I'm not going to say no one cared, but I would say a lot of the people that I talk to, because a lot of my clients um, are business owners and I like them a lot personally. I actually love some of them like their family, but they're very um, on this culture meme of like the, you can't raise the minimum wage type of thing. So when we talk, I hear a lot of that type of argument and, and their reasons. And but what is interesting is, you're right. All of us, me included, um, just to disclose it, um, I should say all, but everybody I know that owned a business and me included received PPP or EDA loans or a combination of it last year. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that I didn't, and neither did anyone I know didn't start arguing about the treasury shouldn't be giving us that money. <laughs> so. My point is, is that, you know, if the government actually had a better narrative and a better marketing game, they would actually be telling people like me that, 
Like, look, we're ra- we're not even going to ask anymore. We're raising the minimum wage because guess what? We just saved your ass last year. <laughs> we just spent four trillion on you. So you know what? It's, it's, it's not even coming out of your pocket all the way right now. So raise the wage and go work hard and go earn more. You know, get your business growing more and blah blah blah. So it's interesting. But 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 to to finish, I think that the second question to me was an important one about the federal government making this decision. So it's interesting. I, I definitely have learned and come to appreciate federalism and the system that the founders created over the last few years, much more so than I had when I was younger in terms of the, um, the you know, kind of these three co-equal branches and then states that have their own rights um, and their own ability and their own state constitutions and all that. So yeah, I feel like the, go- the federal government, I think, should have a role in a lot of things because we're a country and a central government obviously has a role in important stuff. Um, but I think that I like the idea of leaving it to the states. And I, I, I know that we in Florida just a few months ago, like you said, we're in March. So what is it, four or five months ago in the 2020 election, uh, our state uh, passed a constitutional amendment to raise the minimum wage to um, $15 an hour. Yeah. But they're doing it what I would consider the smart way. So it's, it's, it starts now in 2021, the first dollar, and it's just going to go up every year until 2026. And so I think a model like that at the federal level could work. I don't, I'm don't. i not hell-bent that it has to be $15. I think that's where negotiation comes in and good old politics, like I think we remember it to be where there's compromise. Because one thing that we should all acknowledge is, you know, the cost of living in New York is not the same as it is in Idaho. And the cost of living here in South Florida isn't the same as it is in Wyoming or in California. So I do think there, a federal minimum wage, you know, is symbolic whether it makes sense or not, I think it shows that the, we as a nation are going to put a certain floor under what you know we feel that our workers should earn. But I do think there should be always be wiggle room for states and municipalities to make some final decision. Because well, see, I, you know I, interesting you say that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think I look at it differently in the sense that I think that the 15 is the floor, basically. Like the, the, the federal government isn't saying that's where New York should be or that's where California should be. It's actually saying that's where South Dakota or Wyoming should be. And then everybody else can go from there. And so by raising that floor, ideally, the people who need to go higher would go higher from a state standpoint. Uh, I an interesting oh, way to look at it. Yeah, I haven't thought of it like that. And you know. well, let me tell you. I mean, but let me tell you this. I share your discomfort with doing it federally, generally, but I do think there needs to be a a floor that need the floor needs to be raised. That's really the thing. Uh, I don't profess to know whether I don't know that fifteen is some magic number. That seems to just be easy to say or easy like seems to be catchy is why they caught on to it because fifteen or fourteen twenty five or or sixteen and and yeah. ten cents. You know what? Hold I mean, on. It's, if I was a smart ass, what I would do is I think they started that in twenty twelve. Yeah, and I would look at what the inflation adjusted numbers would be. And I'd be like, it's higher. Guys, it would be higher. It would be. I'd be like, you yeah. guys are wrong. It should be seventeen dollars and twelve cents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like you're like, saying it's a meme now. At fifteen it's, an it's, hour, where it come exactly, from? It's just kind of catchy and stuff. So, <laughs> I mean, I think, but I think that whatever, like, this is again what you think of yourself as a society. Like, it, it, are we going to say fifteen is the minimum? But places where the cost of living is higher, you know, hey, you guys should be doing a little bit more. But that's what the baseline we want. If you live in Montana, if you live in Mississippi, if 15 is the number we want. We want you to be able to make, uh, you know, that we want you to be able to make $30,000 a year if yeah. you if you work full time. And, you know, and so I don't have a problem. Like, while in theory, I'm always leery of doing things federally when the local concerns are very 
specific and dis- disparate amongst the states. In this case, I look at it more so as like the, the, the bottom needs to be raised. And we just haven't tended to this for so long that the bottom, it just seems like a lot. To go from seven and a quarter to 15 is like, whoa, that's a lot. But it's because we haven't done anything on it for so long. No, and 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 that's the thing is that, and that's why it's it's just it's just interesting that this all. I mean, I guess this is humanity, right? It all falls down to these 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 uh, culture and emotional things because you know that's why I, I keep thinking of things like like the climate and all that as a, as another type of example where people get so caught up into the emotional arguments and then they they get wedged in these sides that kind of the rational discussion of why something may or may not make sense gets totally thrown out the window. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so, you know, this is <laughs> not this, even part of the discussion. <laughs> no, I know. And, 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 um, and so that's where, you know, I think, um, well, you know, Tunde, that's what we're doing here, actually. Like there's a whole bunch of like political I know, this is boring and- because I didn't call you a POS and <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't say that I have, you know, little hands <laughs> and, you know, we didn't make nicknames for each other to belittle each other. So it's boring. And you know what? If someone's still listening, then I guess they're just boring like us. <laughs> but we, well, yeah, this would, this would not. Um, this is you know, made for cable. all of us nerds. So we, this yeah. isn't cable news fodder. You no, know, like that's but, not what it is. But yeah. So, so like, no, I, I I talk about it. You know, I, I my reference is always like that people seem to want their politics like they want sports. You know, like they want a team. They want, you know, like their team to move the ball forward or to, you know, to, to press defense and don't let the other side. And it's like, well, hold on. No, no, no. This is supposed to be a little bit collaborative. Now, obviously, you have things that are important to you that you want to try to get done. But there's a collaborative nature to this that we like to our own peril. We we ignore. Yeah. So but yeah, I mean, and we can move on after that. I, I, I did. You know, I think that uh, looking at the discussion, though, I mean, and look, looking at it from a government and a society standpoint is worthwhile and not always in the lens of political horse race. And yep. so that's what we wanted to do here uh, from from that standpoint, understanding that, you know, like that's just that's not going to be, you know, you don't have the fireworks flying and, you know, the food getting thrown and so forth. But understanding these issues a lot of times can can help a thoughtful person come to to their own conclusion. Yeah. So yeah, I, but we also wanted to discuss, you know, this this, this recent research uh, coming out of Duke University, which is was just it, it 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 made us laugh a little bit. It made us like say, of course, a little bit because it, it, it talked about male aggression and men that respond aggressively to insults type of thing, it, attacks to their masculinity or their manhood. Not talking about like if you challenge somebody physically or if you you push somebody, do they respond aggressively? But just like if, if you insult them. Do they respond aggressively? And they found the common thread that was they could replicate in, in a study. They could replicate this and, and show a tendency that men who rely on external validation for their manhood, it, they're more they respond more aggressively to insults of the manhood. You know, you know, you'd say, OK, duh. But again, a lot of things that you think are or that come across as like kind of you can see it in your gut. You can feel it. You know, like, oh, yeah, that's just kind of how it is. It's it, sometimes they don't play out like that if you actually test the theory. This one did. And so, you know, it was it was interesting to see. And, you know, we found we we both had some jokes and we both had some stuff. We we're like, oh, let's talk about it. And so, I mean, what was your take on it, Tunde? You know, just in terms of how people, where they get their sense of masculinity de- de- determines how they respond if if someone is testing their masculinity. Again, not physically, just like just calling them out, you know, in a, in a way, you know, in an insult type way. 
Um, I just knew that I'm about to get in trouble in my marriage again with this conversation because I'm going to say something <laughs> stupid. So, uh, <laughs> no, but it was it was a fascinating study. Because like you said, it, it confirms stuff that you kind of felt in your gut. And what's interesting, too, I think, with the study was the fact that we're men. So, like, you know, you, know, you got to kind of self-reflect and say, how do I behave when someone challenges me, my manhood? Yeah. And, um, but what I found, too, and it's interesting because I think the study got into that, too. Well, not I think, I know, um, about the, the age ranges. So men between like 16 or 18 and 26 are at the highest level of insecurity about their manhood, and they respond the most aggressively. Yeah. And that obviously as men get older, you know, we get more secure in it. And it's funny because I started thinking about, you know, I'll be 43 in a couple of weeks. So I'm, you know, middle aged. So I kind of, you know, I'm not too old yet, but I, I remember being a teenager into my early 20s. And 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 it's I'm, I'm married. I've got three kids. I'm pretty like secure in my manhood. You know, I procreated. Yeah. I don't got to prove anything to anyone. So I just started thinking about, yeah, I remember when, you know, you're like a teenager and, you know, you, 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 you want to brag to your friends about what you did with some girl at the party or whatever, you know, when you're in high school and then in college, you got to be the man doing this and that. And, and, you know, there's, and, and it's not even like, it's just you personally, right? It's the culture of manhood. So then we yes, get caught yes. in one to brag because the other guy said he did this and now I'm better than that. So I'm, you know, I got two girls last night. You only got one. Nephew, you know? <laughs> and then and then I was joking with you, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talking crap with each other about this stuff. And I'm like, James, if, if I go once a day, I'm, I'm good for 48 hours. You know what I mean? Like, shit, I can't remember the last time I went three times in a day. And I don't feel like it anymore. And I'm happy to say it. Like, you know, like, I'm not ashamed. But, you know, if if I'd have finished my business in under 90 seconds when I was 21, you wouldn't have heard about it. Because yeah. I'd have been so yeah, yeah. I'd be bragging about that. Yeah, yeah. I'd be laughing. If I go over 60 seconds, I'm looking at my wife like, God damn it now. I'm getting tired. I'm going to hurry this up. And it's like, there's no shame in it at all. Cause I don't care. Like, you know, who's going to judge me now on that stuff about my manhood. And I think that's what, and I, you know, for the audience, I'm not here to talk about me, but it's more of what was going through my head as I was reading the study. And it made me realize how accurate it is that it is about a little bit about your life experience and age as well. Because well, then I was think thinking about it though. If you think about it, we are animals, like for whatever reason, like we are, we're, 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 you know, great and exceptional animals in the sense that we can contemplate our own being and our own existence and so forth, which we don't know that other animals do that, but we are animals. And I think we kind of get lost in that sometimes. Like, of course, look at other mammals, the other mammals, the, the, the male, when they, when they go through certain times in their life, get more aggressive or want to find themselves in the pecking order, you look like whether it be primates or lions, even, you know, one male will drive out the rest of the males and say, hey, no, this is my this is mine right here. And so it's not th th that we have animal behaviors that are hardwired into us in terms of how we interact and react. It shouldn't be a surprise. Again, it's interesting that someone actually tested it and could see it and can replicate it and so forth. But yes, of course, I mean, you're 18 to 26. You're trying to find your pecking order. You're trying to find you know, where you are. And the other thing that stood out to me about this also was if you take it out of just the male context, you know, if you just look at it, another thing that we kind of implicitly know, or, you know, like your parents might've taught you or whatever, was just that if you rely on external validation for anything that you're subject to, to, to making bad decisions, you know, because you're always trying to please the crowd or you're showing off or whatever. And so 
this is if, if you rely on external validation for security or rely on external validation for to make yourself feel worth something worthy or whatever, then you're going to end up making decisions that are suboptimal, basically. And so in this, it's just, yeah, if you rely on external validation for uh, you know, for masculinity, then you're going to you're going to do things, you know, be j- just based on that. You're going to be the tail wagging the dog because you need that validation. And so and, and what if you really if you put the two together, men, what they've shown here is that men are te- have a tendency for that, that they're just good, like yeah. when they're a certain age. Men have a tendency to rely on external validation for something. And it leads to aggression and it leads to things that from a societal standpoint, we need to kind of keep control of, you know, like a, a man doing that stuff on his own, you know, whatever. But from a societal standpoint, we can't have people flying off the handle all the time because there's a bunch of us around here. And we, no, you know, that's and just, I, you know, I wouldn't ahead. be surprised if things like, you know, testosterone and all that plays a role. I mean, one thing, sure, I, well, I know sure, we've talked about this offline, just having our regular philosophy talks. Um, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> audience, you don't want to be in the middle of those. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, like, let's say, for most of human history, right, from early Homo sapiens, of, you know, however long it's been, a million, two million years, um, hunter-gatherer stage, Stone Age, all the way, you know, maybe maybe only until about three, four thousand years ago when you had more of the um, the, the farming and the ability to, 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 to have different societies that, you know, humans live to about 30 to 35 years old. Yeah. I mean, if you were 40, you were like a dinosaur back like 10,000 plus years ago. So the idea, and that's why I laugh now, see, I'm 43, because what I'm getting at is as males get older, our testosterone declines. And I started thinking about it from, you know, because I, when I read these things, I, I often think about the evolutionary need for it. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is that now we have 8 billion humans, half of them are men. And one thing that was very interesting about this study is they did test women. And this is one of those studies that it was very firm that women don't behave like this. Yeah. <laughs> this is our problem, <laughs> this yeah. masculinity. And, and so it got me thinking about certain things like, number one, again, my gut always told me this, but now it's been confirmed. I always felt like, man, when I see like, especially grown men, forget about a kid that's 20 years old. I'm talking guys our age and older mm-hmm. that always act like they got to be macho and beating their chest out. I always, I always had this gut feeling that that must come from some deep insecurity. Yeah, and they got to prove themselves all the time, and um, and this kind of confirms that. And then the other, you thing- know, also you know, like part of that as well is they're trying to prove themselves to themselves. Like part of finding yeah. yourself in the pecking order, it's not just proving yourselves to other people; it's proving yourself to yourself. Where do I fit in? Where do you know? Am I at the top? Am I in the middle? Am I at the bottom? And so, yeah, that constant and, and- need to prove. Is you know it it, does, it is reflective of that, and 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 that could come, and that's where you know me with the psychology, how how strong I believe that you know so much of our development was done when we you know it was was formed in our minds and our psyches when we were in elementary school or earlier when we were, and my point is we were so young that we didn't realize what was happening. Yeah. So now as adults, we kind of react to that. So you're right. Let's say you know guys like us, but let's say you had a really really dominant father. That was actually, you know, kind of a dick and made you, you know, called you gay or something, you know, just made you feel inferior as a man. You might be our age trying to act, you know, trying to flex and show out somehow. And you don't even realize why. Or, you know, I told you a brief, quick story about a guy I knew when I was in college and and he was a womanizer. But then turns out, you know, we find out years later he went to therapy. He ended up he was molested by a male kind of family member when he was 11. And he felt that. He just needed, 
like his subconscious told him that he had to, in order to kind of throw that memory off, he had to just be with as many women as possible. And so yeah. it's just interesting what causes some of these things. And, I, and that's why, again, I thought about me, like, I feel secure. And like I was saying, you know, and toot my own horn and all that shit. But in the end, <laughs> yeah, I know. This is, you know, I don't want to act like I'm so self-centered. But I started thinking, like, well, would I be the same guy if I wasn't married, right? If, if, if I was single, because I know guys my age that are single, and I've never been married. Not that they're divorced, but, you know, they've just never been married. Yeah. And they still out on the town. They go to strip clubs. They're out there trying to, again, prove their manhood. And <laughs> it's just, you know, and that's what I said. You know, I'm not going to look down on those guys because how would I act if I was single? I'm, I'm confident in certain parts of my masculinity because I have a good marriage and I've already procreated. I have kids. So, like, it's like, you know, if someone came and started talking stuff to me now, you know, you ain't a real man. Cause like, like I joked earlier, man, you're telling me you, you, you can't bang somebody three times in a day. You ain't a real man. I'd probably look at them and say, you know, I probably could. I just don't feel like it, and I don't care. <laughs> like, well, you know what it is, basically, is that there's nothing that anyone could tell you that would make you actually truly correct. question your man. Like, Qu- there's correct. nothing they can say. Like, I don't they, have they, an they, insecurity at this point where I might have when I was in my late teens, let's say. Well, Somebody could have picked a scam. Chances are you did, because yeah. that's kind of how you know males are. And, and, and it's very interesting, you know, from that standpoint, just, just in terms of that development. And like I said, it in a village of 20 people, the issue is probably less than it is in a city of 20 million, you know, where you end up with senseless killing and things like that. And it's like, how do we get a handle on this? And it's like, well, man, maybe this is just part of us. I think it is. And, you know, like when we pack in like that, that we're just going to have these types of things. And, you know, I think it's good to look at these types of things because trying to come up with solutions as far as how we can all live together in close quarters, we need to be doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, but look, this study is very interesting because what it points out is that this is who men are, yeah. and especially at certain ages, right? At that younger age, let's say the 18 well, to 26. Well, it, it's a spectrum still. It's a spectrum still, but this exists, basically. Like, not everyone, even in the study, not everyone reacted the same way, even based on age, but the tendencies... The same person at different ages would be more tend to have a higher tendency. Well, that's of, that's the why I give myself and as then, the example because I'm yeah. thinking about it. Like, yeah, I, I definitely wasn't the way I am now, 20 years ago. And then I was thinking, that's what I started thinking. Well, if I just had a different life, like if I was a single guy, still never married, no kids, I mean, maybe I would have some insecurity about that. Maybe I'd be yeah, insecure yeah. that I'm not well, married and I don't have kids, and that I'll creates you another, this. you know, thing. And then the 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 other one that I'll finish on, which made me smile which um, <laughs> proved the whole study in itself. And I'll read here from one of the articles we had on this one. <laughs> Men's aggressive responses didn't end with the study questionnaire. The researchers noted, <laughs> the study designers received violent threats from some men who received low scores. Further evidence that the study hit a nerve. <laughs> when I read yeah, that, wild. I was like, drop the mic. I, was, I yeah, wish, I, wish I could get a, 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 a like a graphic of a... Uh, scientists in a lab coat dropping a mic like yeah like just looking at some guy saying the fact you just threatened to kill me because i gave you a low score just proves actually that i'm right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean now that was a that was a trip that That was was hilarious those dudes took it so seriously that after the study was over they came back like yeah you and and this is one of those studies where they knew they were in a study too. That's it's what not I'm like, saying. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, yo. <laughs> and so, yeah, but, that they, was- that, but that's my point about it, right? That, and, and, and again, not to reverse tracks into the police thing, but it's like even when faced with knowing you're in a situation, that's what I'm just saying, that there's a certain percentage of men 
that just can't take what they might perceive. And that's why I'm being very careful with the way I'm saying about this police thing, the way they perceive maybe being challenged in their masculinity. And that's all subconscious. It's not about what we see on the surface. And that's why I'm saying that I'm not excusing anything. I'm just making the point that in reading these kind of studies, it makes me look like, like you said, and that's why it made me think of it. If you have a city of 20 million people, which is not unrealistic, um, but any large society, then there's more opportunities for these type of interactions to happen between men. And we see it all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that that's kind of why it's good to study this type of thing. Yeah, because, no, it's fascinating. And uh, honestly, this think, is where I feel like um, as a society, we should do a better job bringing this information actually at like at the school level. Like I'm talking like ki- young men in high school should be taught starting to learn this stuff. So that because imagine you and I being armed with this information as teenagers going into, co- you know, the college age. But I know not everyone goes to college. You might at least have a little bit of foundation. But I think we just learned from the people threatening the studies, the, the, the scientists after the fact, that even if you had the information, it wouldn't help you if you were one of the, one of the ones that were, were prone to be triggered by this. So This is where you're going to get glass half full today. Oh, oh. Which is oh. rare. And I, oh. didn't say, I didn't use the S word today, by the way. And to the audience, that's not the S word that I did use. It's a different <laughs> word. <laughs> but, um, but no, my glass half full is just that, you're right. There's some percentage of people that's never going to change. But I believe that there's a percentage of young men, because I remember stuff from certain classes of school, like that you just pull back to it and say, oh, maybe I'm doing that. That's all. That's yeah, my glass I mean, half full. It's, it, it's it worth is. the effort. Put it that way for me. Well, no, that's, that's not to say you don't do it. That's not to say you don't yeah. do it. But it is. The, but the study did kind of confirm that even if you know it's coming, or to some degree, even if you know you're being tested, you know, like that's just a trigger for some people. And particularly at a certain age, you are more prone to being subject to that trigger. So yeah. I don't know. We can, we can wrap it from here. It's interesting, though. I mean, it, it gave us both a good laugh also. So, But we appreciate the audience for joining us on this. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Rate us. Tell us what you think. Give us a review. And until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm tuned to everyone, Lana. All right. We'll talk to you next time.